get a, get a hold of your Bibles uh, and turn in them to Acts chapter 13. We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts. Why are we doing the book of Acts? Because we want as a church to know uh, what did it take to plant the original church, the initial church? Uh, what were the patterns established in the early church? And what were the priorities in the early church? What did they do? How did they do it? Um, this is instructive for us. And it also teaches us how to live within the church because the church is not just a mon- um, monolithic entity. It's made up of many members. It's made up of you and me. So we need to know how do we integrate into this church? How do we live in this church? Uh, and also what's at stake? Yeah, the book of Acts gives us a lot of insight as to what's at stake in the gospel. What's at stake for belief and unbelief? Uh, what does God say about those who would reject the gospel and walk away from the gospel? And all of that is in the book of Acts. And so it's just so rich. Let me read Acts chapter 13. We're going to go 1 through 12, but my text this morning that I'm uh, zooming in on is verse 4 to 12. So the first three verses we did last week, we're going to go 4 to 12, but let me read all 12 verses. This is in the church in Antioch. Again, this is shifting away from Peter and looking at the beginning of Paul's ministry, his missionary ministry. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That was last week. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, uh, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we turn our eyes now to your word. We ask that you would speak that you would make known and clear to us what it is we are to believe and how we are to live. Lord, I pray that you would inhabit by your spirit uh, what is said, Lord, and may you, may you strike down any word that is not in accordance with your scripture, and Lord, may you imprint on our hearts any word that is. I ask that you would use me now as your servant, Lord, that I would step out of the way and Lord, give exaltation to Jesus Christ. So we, we again ask, Lord, that you would speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So, title of my message is Enemy of Righteousness. It kind of sounds like a Denzel Washington movie, but it's not. It is, uh, it's right from our text. But it's intense, isn't it? It's a little bit provocative. It's, it's intriguing. Enemy of righteousness. Who is the enemy of righteousness? What does that mean? And isn't that pretty negative for a Sunday, Sunday morning? We need to hear from the text to instruct us. And so I ask, I, I begin with a question or some sort of exploratory thought. If the Bible is God's word, if we believe it came from God, meaning every part of it is from him, every part of him of it is his message to his church, to his people, to the world, 
then I think, in, in some way or another, there's one verse, there's one single verse that explains everything in the Bible. Wouldn't you like to know what that verse is? It's the, it's the hermeneutical key to the whole scriptures. It's the reason the scriptures exist. It's the reason why every story on every page exists. I've shared this verse with you before, and I'm happy to do it again. It's becoming very quickly my, my favorite verse and phrase in the whole Bible, and it gives meaning to everything that we as human beings do. Habakkuk, I've quoted this before. I quoted this. I had the kids recite it when we preached outside of the park. Habakkuk 2.14, I think, explains the whole Bible. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. That explains the whole Bible. That explains everything. For declarative, the whole earth will be filled, that is filled, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. There will be no place on earth where there is ignorance or darkness regarding the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Has that come true yet? No. But that's, in, in the words of Scripture, that's a prophecy. That is a declaration. That's a promise from God. As water covers the sea. Now, that's sort of a redundant phrase, right? It's like, well, the sea is water. That's the whole point. To speak of the sea is to speak of water. And in the same way, to speak of God's creation is to speak of his knowledge. To, to say there is something that God made is to say it is his knowledge. It is an embodiment. It is the manifestation of his knowledge. To speak of the earth is to speak of the place where God's knowledge is. Right? Because we are intelligent beings able to discern his knowledge. And so that verse explains everything. And I think in a certain way, it comes into sharper focus this morning in our text in Acts. We really test that verse. Is that verse true? Will that verse be true? That gets really tested here in Acts chapter 13. We really find out if God means it when he says the whole earth is going to be filled with his knowledge. Do you believe the whole earth will be filled with his knowledge? Do you believe that? I mean, seriously, when you walk down the street and you walk past, you know, tattoo shops and sex shops and bong shops and, um, you know, broken down families, when you walk through the world, do you believe that? Do you believe that the whole earth will be filled with his knowledge, with the knowledge of his glory? It's hard to say yes sometimes, right? That gets tested in a real sense in our hearts. But I believe, as Jesus said, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and it will ever like leaven spread until the whole earth is full of his knowledge. I believe that. That's why we do church, folks. That's why we get up in the morning. That's why we continue to preach and to believe and to discipline ourselves to follow Christ even when it seems meaningless or when it doesn't make a difference or when it's hard. Because the whole earth is going to be filled with his knowledge and he has chosen us weaklings, to be a part of that mission. Let's close in prayer. I'm just joking. We've got to find out how this text tests that. But that's where I'm going with this. That's where I'm going. That's, that's what my life is wrapped around. And I pray you wrap your life around that mission as well because the word of the Lord will not fade as the flower fades, Peter quotes in his letter. So I, I think this verse gets really tested here in Acts chapter 13. And so it's a, it's a good experience. It's, it's good for us to dive in and soak our heads in this moment in the text to find out if this is true of the Lord and of the world. My outline kind of goes over the same three characters in three different ways. That's how I've outlined this text. We have the characters, who they are. It's pretty basic. Then we have the characters' motives. What were they doing and why were they doing it? And then we have the characters and the outcomes. The outcomes. That's important because we find out what happens as a result of who they are and what they're trying to do. So that's how I've outlined this. Let's look at the characters. Number one, we have the apostles. Who are the apostles in the text? Well, Paul and Barnabas. Now, Barnabas was not one of the 12 disciples. He is sort of considered apostolic in the book of Acts. Uh, I don't think his name necessarily is on the 12 stones in the New Jerusalem. I think that's for the 12 disciples of Christ plus Paul, because we know Judas 
eliminated himself from that company. Paul came in to replace Judas, I, I think in a very real sense. And so Barnabas, I don't think is one of the 12 in the New Jerusalem. I don't think that's that significant for us to think about right now. But Barnabas had an apostolic ministry. He traveled with Paul. He carried the authority of Paul um, and they were co-partners in ministry. So we have Paul and Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas is the one when the church was scared to welcome Paul in. His name was Saul at the time. They were afraid to welcome him in because he was formerly a terrorist of the church. Arrested Christians, supervised their execution. Like he hated the church. So the church was very nervous to welcome him in when he got saved. And Barnabas said, he kind of took him by the hand and brought him in and said, I trust him. We need to trust what the Lord has done here. And so Barnabas and Saul slash Paul, I think, have this really tight bond because of that. So they were both, they were worshiping and ministering in Antioch. And the Holy Spirit interrupt not interrupts, but in, in, through their prayer meeting, the, the Holy Spirit um, interacts with them and says, I, I want these two men set apart for a specific work. And that work was to be traveling, preaching, planting churches. And we saw in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes that ministry as being basically life-threatening constantly. It was misery. You know, you think church planting in Smith Falls is hard? Try being the Apostle Paul. I mean, the guy literally nearly died countless times. What he faced, the opposition he faced, was, was in our minds just massive. And so they had this difficult, challenging work set apart um, for them. And then they were also not only called out by the Spirit, but sent out by the church. Now, our text does hear that they were being sent out by the Holy Spirit, but we cannot miss that the church laid hands on them and supported them and affirmed them in their calling. I think that's so important for a church congregation to, to be behind those that are sent out. I, I mean, I, do, I don't believe in lone wolf ministry. I believe that the ministry must always and should always be connected to a local governed body uh, of Christ so that there can be support, there can be reminders, there can be accountability. It's just, I it's built into scripture. Uh, but they were sent out or commissioned by the Holy Spirit and affirmed by the local church. And the thing is that they were, they were doing this in obedience to the Spirit but also in accordance with the words of Christ. In what? Matthew 28, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we have the words of Christ being um, applied by the Holy Spirit here. It's very much how our lives ought to look, right? We have the word of God uh, affirmed and confirmed by the Holy Spirit as we read and obey. And that's that's a pattern, and it looked different in the book of Acts before they had the words written and texts to pass around. But nonetheless, it's the pattern. We follow the words of Christ, the word of God, and it's affirmed and confirmed by the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is in the church. And so it's in line with the scriptures. I use that in light quotes because I don't think the book of Matthew had been written yet or they didn't have access to it or whatever. But making disciples was their call. So these are these are the guys. They're a it's Saul and it's Barnabas and it shows where they went. They sailed to Cyprus, which is an island. And they arrived at Salamis, which is a town on the island. And they actually traveled all the way across the island. I wish I had a slide. I'm not, I'm not tech savvy all the time. But um, they sailed from, from the east side of the island all the way to the west side. And they visited all these towns. Okay, and so they're, they're already sailing, which if, if you're a sailor, you're excited about their journey. If you're, you know, if Paul was seasick, it's like, oh, I didn't know this was going to be part of it. But I mean, there are, there are practical elements to this missionary journey that are just difficult right off the bat, right? It's like, first, we've got to get on a boat. And there, it's just, it's a demanding work. And it tells us where they go. And they, they went as far as Paphos, which is on the, on the western side of the island. And then it tells us that's when they met these other characters. Now, who are the other characters? We have a proconsul. A proconsul, his name is Sergius Paulus. And again, in the Roman Empire, they, they governed not through one centralized authority, although they did, they had an emperor, but they also had governors and, and, and other magistrates who would watch over smaller areas. It's kind of like Canada with prime ministers. I mean, that's the best way I can compare it, although they weren't, our prime ministers are not autonomous. They're subject to elections, whereas the proconsuls were not. They were subject to uh, job review. We looked at this, right, with Herod, the Tetrarch, who was ruling over the Jews. They're subject to job review. Have you ever had a uh, performance review at work? And it's like, my job kind of hangs on this. And you want to make sure leading up to that 
job performance review that you are doing what you've been asked to do. Well, these proconsuls were given areas to govern. And they had to keep the peace. They had to keep the empire together. That's the whole deal, right? How do you think that Rome got so big? Right? Every, every, they say all roads lead to Rome. There's this idea that they had this massive physical geographic um, landmass and they were governed by all these guys keeping peace in the empire. So this is a proconsul. His name's Sergius. And, and he's there. We're taught that he's a man of intelligence. That's good. And that he was there summoning them to hear about the word of God. He wanted to know what was going on. In other words, he was competent. He knew what was going on in his area. He knew the apostles had arrived and there was teaching going on. He was aware. He was active in his leadership role. And he was a strategic and a thinking man. Okay, this, is not, this is no dope. This is sort of no like figurehead. This is a guy who is serious about his role. He's serious about the way the world works. And he wants to do... Right, he wants to do a good job in his post there um, in Rome. In the Roman Empire, I should say. And then we have a third character. His name is Bar-Jesus. He's called a certain magician. He's called a Jewish false prophet. So Luke, right off the bat, Luke, the writer of Acts, acknowledges uh, that this man is religious. He identifies with the Jewish faith. He knows about the Old Testament. He knows about... um, uh, he knows about uh, the, the one true God. Okay, he's sort of uh, involved with the Jewish population there. But he's sowing error. He's speaking falsely. That's what a false prophet is. It's somebody who says, I have a message from God, but it's actually not from God. That's what false prophecy is. It's somebody telling you, I know what God has for you, but they're lying. God took Old, um, Old Testament false prophets incredibly seriously. God hates false prophets. He despises when people speak in his name and lie. He says in Jeremiah 14, 14, Jeremiah is a fantastic book to read about what what a false prophet looks like and the kind of things that they share. Jeremiah 14, 14, the Lord said to me, that is Jeremiah, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. In other words, I don't know where they are getting this stuff, but it is not from me, God. That's what a false prophet is in in God's definition. I didn't send them. I didn't tell them to speak. I didn't speak to them. Nothing. They don't know me. They are lying to you. Now, he goes on to say this. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. That's how false prophets work. Worthless divination, conjuring spirits, conjuring, um, you know, false views into the future and the deceit of their own minds. They're just working from their own thoughts, their own minds. It has nothing to do with who God is or what God wants for his people. The reality in this identity is that God, almost by default, graciously reveals himself. He's a God who communicates with people. As soon as he created Adam and Eve, he gave them commands. He gave them a job. He gave them a place and and, and he instructed them. He told them how they were to live. God didn't just put them in a perfect world and said, oh, there, they should have everything they need. Mankind still depends on a communication relationship with God. And so God reveals himself to his people. And it's an act of grace, should I mention. The, The fact that we know anything about God is a pure act of grace on his part. Undeserved from us. What did we deserve to ever get a glimpse of who God is? Were we able to sneak into his throne room and just take a peek and say, oh, good, now I know I'm going to take notes. God does not accidentally reveal himself to anybody. He is intentional, he is focused, and he is gracious in the way he reveals himself, which is why it's such a big deal and why it's such a, a wicked thing for a false prophet to speak, to pervert what God has in grace given to us. And so this guy, Bar-Jesus, is going around sowing false prophecy, giving false instruction among the Jews. And I mean, who doesn't like a charismatic, authoritative guy that you can follow? This is why false prophecy is such a, it's a lucrative business. Because people want to follow somebody who they know what they're trying to say and they know how to communicate it and they're attractive. Aren't we so willing to just jump on and just follow a personality because oh, they look like they've got it together? 
I mean, we think that false prophets go, go around with, you know, like unwashed hair and ragged clothes, and it's like they, they're scary looking. No. They attract a following. This is what Bar-Jesus was doing in this time. So there's the three characters. We've got the apostles, we've got a proconsul who's ruling, and we've got a false prophet who knew and was in, in some way close with the proconsul. I think they had a, some kind of relationship. Now let's look at motives. Let's look at the emotives. Uh, the motives, not the emotives. Um, we have the apostles. What are they doing there? The, apo- the word apostle means sent one. They were sent by the Holy Spirit, right? Sent out by the church. It means sent one. And what was their motive? It's right here in our text. When they arrived, verse 5, at Salamis, they what? Proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues. That's what they were there to do. They were there to preach and teach the word of God. Now, that's amazing because, again, at that time, what were they proclaiming? Were they opening to Acts chapter 13? No. They were living Acts chapter 13. What, What book of the Bible did they have? Well, they went to the synagogue, so they had the Old Testament. So we know that there's a view... In the New Testament, that the Old Testament is, is as much God's word as the New. Let's, let's be aware of that. But also, they were giving prophecy in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which wasn't fully revealed in the Old Testament. And so there's a, there's a sense in which the New Testament scriptures are telling us that the words of the apostles were the word of God. In Acts chapter 2, we see that the, that the early church, when they gathered, they devoted themselves to four things. What's the first thing they devoted themselves to? The apostles' doctrine. That's not because the apostles were so slick. It's because the apostles were given divine authority to speak the word of God. They literally spoke prophetically and authoritatively. The apostles had an authority not only to write scripture, but to speak scripture at that time. We have their words as scripture. So we need to recognize that Luke understands them to be speaking God's word authoritatively. This is true prophecy. This is in contrast with Bar-Jesus, who is sowing false words. We have the apostles speaking the word of God, the pure word of God, revealing who God is and what he has done in Christ. That's what they were there to do. Now, here's the reality. They were there on a divine mission. They were called out by the Holy Spirit and sent out by a divine institution. They were called out by the divine and sent out by a divine institution. The church exists because of the redeeming work of Christ, and the church operates because of the gift of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So their mission is purely divine. As a church, and especially as church leaders, we need to recognize and be aware that the, the work of leaders in the church is not to draw men to themselves, not to build a brand, not to build a following, not to preach myself, not to, de- not to demonstrate who I am and, and why I am worthy of following. Why should you go to my church? I'm planting a church so differently over here. Come listen to me. That's not how the apostles lived. They were there to preach the word of God. They were there to speak God's message, not to massage human ego or not to, not to create some kind of cushy little spot where people could feel comfortable. They were there to speak God's message the way that God had them speak. They were messengers. They weren't authors. They were messengers of God's gospel. So that's what the apostles were doing there. What's the motive of the proconsul? Now here he was in our text. It says that he summoned them them, and he sought to hear the word of God. Now I think right here we can get tripped up in this. And I, I don't I don't say this with, with 100% certainty, but I don't, I, don't give bar, um, I don't give the proconsul here sort of this like seeker identity. Like he was like, oh, I just, I'm so hungry to hear the word of God. I don't know that that's what the text gives us. He summoned them to hear the word of God. But again, what do we, what do we know about these governors? Is that they governed by understanding all the religions and tolerating them all. Rome had... Um, had a, had a series of official religions. These are the official religions of Rome. But they also permitted worship, free worship, of basically all religions as long as they acknowledged Caesar as the highest authority. So Judaism was not an official religion of Rome, but it was recognized and it was tolerated 
because as long as it didn't conflict with the Roman Empire, they were fine with it. That's how you build a kingdom that spans a whole bunch of cultures and religions. You basically say, well, I can hold this thing all together if I don't make you all do something. If I let you all live in peace the way you are, I can keep my kingdom together. I can keep my empire together. So the Romans, as I said, governed very pragmatically. And this is a proconsul. There's a new word coming into his jurisdiction. There's a new message. There's a new religion coming. It's called Christianity. It's an offshoot in some way of Judaism, but what's it all about? And so he's gathering. He wants to hear about this religion. He wants to find out if it can be tolerated or if it needs to be squashed. I think he's governing here. I think he's doing a good job at governing. He's doing what he's been called to do, which is to understand the peoples and help them all live in harmony with each other so that the empire stays together. So I don't give him a lot of spiritual credit for this. Um... Like, I, I don't have a lot of people calling me up from the streets of Smith Falls and like, hey, man, I heard you're a preacher. Like, would you come share the gospel with me? This doesn't happen. And I don't think the proconsul here is, is unique. I don't think he's got this uniquely, like, he really wants to know. I think he's like everybody else. He's doing his job. He's doing a good job of it. Anyway, that's, so that's what I get from our text and from the context. But... He's got to figure out how to, how to incorporate this new faith into the pantheon of other faiths. Uh, he's an unbeliever in the exact same way that Bar-Jesus is. They just have very different vocations. And I think, um, I think that uh, Sergius does not have any inherent hatred for or ill will toward the word of God. I think he's just coming to hear what it's all about. Now we move to Bar-Jesus, and this is, a, this is a big chunk of our text. What are Bar-Jesus' motives? The text gives us exactly what he's all about. The text tells us exactly what he's all about. So when, so when the proconsul summons the apostles, Bar-Jesus finds out and does what? Verse, verse 8, what does he do? He's not like, oh, that'd be great. I'll grab a sub on the way, and then I'll hear the word of God too. You know, no, he doesn't. Verse 8 says, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here we have a false prophet encountering God's true prophets, his messengers. And there's a struggle here. There's a struggle for territory. There's a struggle for dominance here. Bar-Jesus has already set himself up as a false prophet, as one who would have his own territory and his own message separate from God. And then when he sees God's people coming, he wants to protect the proconsul and the territory of that man's life for himself. And so here's another reality is that if the proconsul gets converted to Christianity, then false versions of Christianity are going to be harder to live according to. Isn't that right? The more God-saturated a culture is, the more difficult it is to live in sin and in rebellion against God. There is, it's, it's no coincidence that the loudest voices against Christianity are those who are living in most outward rebellion against God. There's no coincidence that those who want to live in, in the greatest, most flagrant, sexually rebellious lives against God are the loudest against the gospel of Christ. Why? Because if the gospel permeates that culture, it's going to be shameful for them to exercise their shame in public. And I don't center out the homosexual agenda or anything like that, but anybody whose sin is celebrated in public is free to express it in public. And so Bar-Jesus is protecting his vocation. He's protecting his following. He wants to make as small as possible the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He wants to shrink it, diminish it. He wants to push it in a corner. He does not want the knowledge of God to spread. That's his motive. He wants to keep the proconsul from hearing the gospel. But Saul, who is also called Paul, has something else for him. Now, before we get to that, I want to look at this concept of opposing the truth and, and what he's about because He's called an enemy of righteousness. That's the one in our text who's the enemy of righteousness. The proconsul Sergius is not called an enemy of righteousness. Now, we, you know, in our sort of reformed or, or conservative or orthodox circles or whatever, we have this doctrine of total depravity. Everyone is against God. There is not one who seeks the Lord. No, not one. Uh, Romans chapter 3. 
So we say, well, everyone's an enemy of God. And, and in a sense, that is true. But there is a unique um, designation for Bar-Jesus as an enemy of righteousness. He's called an enemy of righteousness. And, and this concept of enemy, Paul is not just pulling out of thin air. He's not just using a really high-impact word. He's associating with him with and explicitly stating that he is a son of the devil. Satan is God's archetypal enemy. Satan is the enemy number one of God. There's a parable that Jesus tells where there, there are sowers and the seed grows up and grows wheat. And there are also tares or like weeds that will grow up among the tare, among the wheat. And the disciples aren't really sure what's going on. This is in Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus goes to explain it. And I want you to hear the language that Jesus uses. And he explains the parable of the sower. How did I get to Mark so quickly? Stay in Matthew 13. The parable of the weeds explained. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So like we are, we are the sons of the kingdom. We're the good seed. But what else happens in this evangelistic effort? The weeds are the sons of who? The evil one. Sons of the evil one. That's who Bar-Jesus is, is characterized as. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The devil is not just out there being bad for the sake of being bad. Scriptures tell us that the devil, as the enemy of God, is reproducing counterfeit versions of the truth. Counterfeit versions of even Christians. Just as God is sowing seed to reproduce Christians, Satan is sowing seed to produce false Christians. Have you come to terms with that reality? That they are sown, not just out there. Just the, Satan is not just all the ugly, bad stuff that goes on out there. That's obvious to us. Satan is at work intimately and in a dedicated way inside the church. Inside God's word, among his people, sowing false truth. Sowing deception. Trying to get you to believe things that if you hold on to, will condemn you to eternity separated from God. That is Satan's goal. He is the enemy of God. And so everything that God does, Satan is doing for the opposite effect. If God's goal, if God's desire is to save men so that they would dwell eternally in paradise with him, what is Satan's goal? To produce followers for himself that will end up in eternal destruction with him. Now, these are not equal and opposite forces like yin, yin, yin and yang. God, God has no competition, but we recognize that there is an enemy at work in the world, and this is how he works. C.S. Lewis in the book, The Screwtape Letters, and I'm going to paraphrase because I couldn't find the exact quote, but um, what's that? Wormwood? Is Wormwood his nephew? And so uh, Screwtape, who's the old demon, is writing to his young demon nephew, and he's teaching him how to deceive Christians. And he's writing in one of the entries, he says, you know, dear Wormwood, one of the strangest things I find, and don't look it up and say Tim quoted it wrong, I'm just paraphrasing, but one of the strangest things about these humans is that they are so concerned about the things that we're putting into their heads. When the most effective work we do is keeping things out. What is the work of Bar-Jesus here? He is opposing the gospel message. He is literally trying to keep it out of the mind of the proconsul. He is blocking the seed sown of the gospel. He is trying to keep it out of Sergius's mind so that he will turn to Christ. That makes him an enemy of God, an enemy of righteousness. This, this phrase, enemy of righteousness, is not just in some specific sense like you're an enemy of Jesus' righteousness, but it is in the broad sense, it's everything that is God. You're an enemy of God's ways, of God's mission, of God's everything. You're an enemy of all righteousness. You have set yourself against what is good in the world, what belongs to God. These words, villainy and deceit. Paul says to him, you're full of deceit and villainy. Now, deceit is, is the counterfeit truth, right? Deceit is 99% truth, 1% error. 
Deceit is to mislead somebody from what they have known to be true. Deceit is to, to lead somebody off. But what's villainy? We don't really use that word anymore, but it, it translates something to the effect of recklessness causing harm. Satan has this work of recklessly destroying and misleading people, causing great harm. I talked at the beginning of this about what are the stakes of the gospel. What's at stake? Is it just no big deal, neutral, if you don't accept the word of God? No, the stakes are high. It's recklessness causing harm. Causing harm to who? Those that are led astray. It is a great harm to you if you are led away from the purity of the gospel of Christ. It is a great harm to you and to me. Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on your teaching for in doing so what? You will save yourself and your hearers. How important is it for me to recognize that I am saved by maintaining an understanding of the truth? The preacher is saved by the by the, the, the truth. I am somehow not separate and above and outside of the, pro, the proclamation of the truth. Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch in it because if you stray, not only are your hearers destroyed, but you are destroyed. There's a lot at stake, my friends. There's a lot at stake in the truth of the gospel and the reality that Satan is an enemy sowing deceit. There's a lot at stake and so his motives are to keep people in the dark, to keep people away from Christ. Now, what's the outcomes? What are the outcomes? And this is sort of, I'm rounding the bend here. How does, how does this play out? Paul has a motive to preach and to convert. The proconsul is just doing his job. I don't think he has any idea what's coming. And the false prophet wants to keep influence to himself, and he wants to sabotage this evangelistic effort. What's the outcome? How do the apostles respond? I love this. Saul, who is also called Paul, it's like almost like he puts on like the apostolic like cape right now. He becomes the apostle Paul as we know him, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looked intently at him. Can you imagine that stare? Can you imagine that fixated look that Saul levels against this false prophet? Here's what didn't happen. Here's what didn't happen. He wants to go talk to him. Oh, I'm here to see um, the proconsul. And then Bar-Jesus is there and he says, you know, he stands in their way. You're never going to share the gospel with him. You know, I'm his spiritual advisor. You'll never get close to him. And the apostle was like, oh, well, we tried. Let's, let's go. They don't want it here. That's what didn't happen. Paul fixates his eyes on him and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said, now this word said in the Greek is so weakly translated in our English, but this is not just he made noise with his mouth. He didn't just, um, oh, this is awkward, but I have to say this. He said, he gave, he gave reality words. In other words, he spoke the meaning of the, of the situation he wrapped words around them. He, he spoke literally as if from God. He gave meaning in, in verbal fashion to what was happening there. In other words, these are forceful words. These are weighty, true words. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. That's quite an introduction, isn't it? You enemy of righteousness, you son of Satan. Paul immediately recognizes this person for who he is and he does not mix his words and he does not soft pedal what is going on. He refutes God's enemy and he exposes his character. He exposes his motive and he exposes the treacherous work that he's doing. Paul is not fat, um, passive. Paul is not a passive apostle. Paul is not a passive preacher. Paul confronts and rebukes Satan's attempt to diminish the spread of God's knowledge, right? Habakkuk 2.14. The, the spread of the knowledge of God is going to continue until the earth is full. So when Satan sets his, himself and his servants against that mission, are we to be passive and say, well, well, we tried? Or are we agents of the spreading of that knowledge? Answer, we are agents of it. We are, we are embodiments of the word of God. We, we, not, that, not that we speak authoritatively, but we are filled with the Holy Spirit and given his word. 
Now, not all of you are confrontational and, and called to this kind of public rebuke. I, that's not what I'm saying. Don't go be a jerk to people who don't understand the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the church in some contexts, in some contexts, a public rebuke of error can be just as important as a private gospel message. Just as important as a private gospel presentation is a public refutation of error and identifying somebody as they truly are. Now, again, I don't recommend going around calling somebody a a son of Satan. I think Paul had unique insight. He was uniquely commissioned for what he was called to. And, but this is the ministry of, of the church. This is, the, this is how the church advances the knowledge of God. They stand against error. I want to share with you a verse, and, and Paul would later write this. Understanding his ministry. Paul would say in, in 2 Corinthians 10, 15, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, what, So how does Paul understand his ministry? We destroy knowledge raised up against Christ. We destroy it. We confront it. We battle it. We go, we go to war with error. We don't stand back and say, well, well, I hope they come and just see how nice we are. Friends, this, this, is not, this is not a competition between being loving and speaking the truth. Please don't see a dichotomy here. This is not everybody, you know, get out your, your batons and get out there and beat people over the head. This is not a call for that. This is a call for the tenacity of the church not to be embarrassed about the spread of the knowledge of the glory of God. For we are in line with Habakkuk 2.14 when we do so. So that's the outcome from Paul. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Aren't there some people that you just want to say that to? Will you not stop perverting the way of God? Will you not stop twisting and manipulating the truth? I pray that our, our witness as a church is increased. I just pray that people understand and see this. In the, in the, that those who are not with Christ are not in some neutral ground. They are in deception. They need the truth. They need knowledge of God. So that's how Paul responds. What's the outcome for the false prophet? Judgment. He says, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. This is not just some random trick he pulled out of his pocket. This is a false prophet misleading people in darkness. Paul gives him the physical punishment that that utterly embodies what he's doing. You want to make people blind? You will be blind. And how ironic that this prophet who was acting like, come and I will show you the way. I will show you. I have secret knowledge. Come and hear me. Come and hear me explain the way of the world to you. He now goes about seeking people to lead him. So God's, God's justice on this man is, 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 is poetic. It is emphatic. And it is symbolic for the error and the enemy, the work of the enemy that he was doing. Paul uh, Paul. Um, the Lord, through Paul, blinds him and so manifests his character to the world. This man is truly blind. He's a false prophet. Now, what is, what is, the, what is the outcome for the proconsul? He believed. This is, the, this is the good news at the end of this. Why does God do anything to spread the knowledge of his glory? It's not to make an example of people. It's not to just be petty. It's not to exact you know, vindication or karma. That's not how God works. Why does he do anything? It's to spread the knowledge of his glory. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. He witnessed this miraculous work and he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, at the words that Paul spoke. Now, I find this astonishing to me because you hear about people constantly wanting to imitate the good works of the, the miracles that the apostles did. They want to raise the dead. They want to heal the sick. I don't hear many people describing it, how important it is to curse people in God's name. I don't see many faith healers saying, now, you know, we need an, we need an even balance here of healing the sick and also blinding people. We don't see that often. Why? Because that's an apostolic ministry. These are attesting sign gifts so that when the, prof- when the prophets spoke, when the apostles spoke, they acted in such a way that proved that God was with 
their message. He was in the message. That they weren't just speaking from their own divine imaginations or, or, or manipulations or whatever. That God was truly with them. They're attesting gifts. They're gifts that went along with the prophetic message. So I just, we have to recognize that and we have to be wary when we ask God to work miraculously because we do not know the condition of people's hearts. We do not know how God needs to act in somebody's life in order to bring about belief. God judges just as readily as he heals and sets free. We are messengers. We, we share the gospel. We let God deal with people and... Uh, should we pray for people to be healed? Yes. Should we care for one another? Yes. Again, don't take this and characterize my ministry as just saying, let everybody die. No. But what I'm saying is this is not an active part of many of the, the, the high charismatic movement. You don't see this happening. And it's a, it's a manipulation of the balance of Scripture. It's a manipulation and it's a selective application of apostolic ministry. And it's unfaithful. And so we, we steer away from that. And... and this is what's interesting. He believed, when did he believe? He, he believed when he saw the sign. That was the time that he believed. But why did he believe? For he was astonished at the teaching. Did you see that? He didn't believe because of the work. He believed when he saw the work because he was astonished at the teaching. Don't miss that in the text. The miraculous, whether positive or negative or healing or cursing, is not the source of belief. It is not what will make people believe. It's the teaching. He's astonished at the authority of Jesus Christ, and he believes. Now, here's the, here's what's, here's the great hope. This is all God requires of the proconsul. That's it. This proconsul's destiny has been changed forever. Why? Because he believed. Belief is the work that God performs in the man, and it's the only work by which we will be justified. Are we saved by faith or by works? We're saved by faith, but it's belief. John 1, uh, sorry, 1 John three twenty three says, this is the command of God that we believe in the name of his son. In other words, if you want to obey God, believe in Jesus Christ. And the proconsul did that that day. He, he fulfilled the command of God. You want to know how to fulfill the command of God in your life? Believe in Christ. And, you, and, and you're covered. You're covered. And you continue in obedience, but you believe. And the proconsul believed God achieved his work. Now again, this, we're talking about the works of God and the works of Satan. What is the work of Satan? To deceive and to cause, cause false belief. What is God's work? It is to speak the truth and to create true belief. And that's, that's how you can divide the whole world. That's what's going on in the world around us today. The proconsul was that day justified. He was forgiven and he was remade for God's glory, bound for eternal life. That's the, that's the glory in this story, that there was belief. It's not judgment for the sake of judgment. It's judgment to achieve the advancement of the knowledge of the glory of God. We'll conclude with this. Um, how does this apply in Evergreen Chapel specifically? Right now, we're praying for, we're seeking to establish elders. How do elders follow this pattern? An elder will proclaim the truth. He will preach the truth and teach the truth without apology, spreading the knowledge of God through Christ. Tethered to scripture and, and divinely uh, empowered by the spirit to preach it. And an elder will refute. Titus, Titus 1.9 says that an elder must hold fast to the word the trustworthy word is taught so that he will be what? Able to do two things. Give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. We cannot miss this, friends, as a church. If we are not rebuking error, we are giving passivity to it. We are giving a passive approval to it. God does not share his truth. He does not share the platform. That doesn't mean elders are to be arrogant and self-righteous. It means elders are to be convinced and, and utterly tied to the scriptures, refuting error when it comes in our midst. And so you'll see that at this church, God willing, as little as possible. But when there is error festering in a church, the elder must co contradict it and refute it so that it does not take hold. Why? Why is this such a big deal? What's at stake? At stake is the belief and endurance of God's people. You cannot worship what you do not know. If you are not growing in the knowledge of the Lord, you are not growing in your worship of the living God. 
You're stagnant. You're, 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 you're shrunken. You're, you're, you're stunted in your growth in Christ. And so the truth must always be our steady diet. Deception keeps people from, under, uh, from, from belief. And it rattles people from their belief inside the church. John also writes in his letter, 1 John 2.24 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. You think you're safe and sound because you're part of a church. There are those who are at work to deceive you to draw you away from devotion to Christ, to make you feel like God has shortchanged you, to make you feel like something isn't right because of God, to draw you away from him after a totally different system of beliefs. You are, there, there are those at work in your life to deceive you. And the preacher is here to say, I'm writing these things to you because of those people. I'm here to contend for your belief. That is why I am in this church. I'm here to contend for your mind. To keep you from the error that is constantly trying to press in and choke out the word of God. Here's the exciting part. So that's what elders do. Number two, what will people do? People will believe. People will believe. People will turn from darkness as they're innocently doing their jobs. They'll turn to Christ. And they will endure. And they will walk with you. And they will walk in the church. And they will, they will endure to eternal life. And others will oppose Others will oppose, they will deceive, and they will fall away from Christ. You can count on that. Others will fall away from Christ, and they will deceive Christians who stay with him. But none of these things diminishes the reality of true belief. None of these things diminishes God's glory advancing as water covers a sea. None of those things challenge that. These are realities that we face as the church. And number three, we have elders, we have people, and who's the biggest one? God. God will not be silenced. God has given us his word clearly. He has given us the word. There is no excuse we have for being muddled or unsure about all matters pertaining to life and godliness. We have it right here. God will not be silenced. His church will not be destroyed. And we, with total confidence, can pour our efforts into this mission of God, knowing that it will succeed. Does that mean it'll be painless and perfect? No. But you can have confidence in in the, the knowledge that God has given you of Christ. And as you pour into his mission, that, that you will be a part of it. And regardless of opposition, faithfulness will endure. Faithfulness will come out on top. His people will remain faithful to him. And that's what we see here in this first great conflict between Paul and the false prophet. And we see an amazing pattern of God for his name acting, for his name spreading the gospel, for his name spreading the glory, the knowledge of his glory. And the church is at work just just there all the time, seeing it happen, working with God, being a part of it. It's amazing. And it'll go on until the work is done, until Christ is finished and he comes back and everything's done. That's, that's what our lives are about. So let's wrap our lives around that together. That's, that's my challenge to you. That's my request to you. And um, by God's grace, you will be filled and, and equipped and comforted as you uh, partner with the church in doing that. Let's close in prayer and we're going to sing a song.